You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which came out in 1982 and was directed by Nicholas Meyer. The wonders of the universe, the dangers of space, the challenge of the unknown, the courage of a warrior, the vengeance of a madman, kill him, the seed of new life, the hand of death, the plan of a genius, the wrath of Khan. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, rated PG. It stars William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, Ricardo Montalban, DeForest Kelly, Walter Koenig, Nichelle Nichols, George Takei, James Duhan, Paul Winfield, B.B. Besh, Merritt Buttrick, and Kirstie Alley. The genre would be space adventure. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most human. I don't care what anyone says, but dialogue like that is poetry, or at least what I would consider poetry. Yes, it's cheesy on the surface, but coming from actors who had already been working together for more than 15 years at the time of release, and who over the past decade or so leading up to this film's release, had pretty much had their existences defined by these characters, as Nimoy would even commiserate about in a book that he wrote during that time. You just believe this dialogue, and they sell the shit out of it. Now, I was never a Trekkie, nor Trekker. My parents were, so I did see a select number of episodes growing up of the original series and The Next Generation. I have seen most of the movies, and I probably liked the majority of them. But for some reason, decades later, after having first seen this movie in theaters, and on cable, and on video, finding myself to have minimal interest in all things Trek, I still absolutely love this film, and I probably rewatch it at least once a year. That it's a sequel to such an unremarkable slog like Star Trek The Motion Picture makes that all the more interesting. All I can remember from The Motion Picture is what felt like an hour of Sulu just staring mouth agape at the big screen, and some bald chick who sort of becomes an alien by the end. It's not really a movie about these characters, nor are they given much interesting to do. I mean, I think Shatner, Kelly, Nimoy, Nichols, and crew were in The Motion Picture, but I am at a loss as to remembering anything that they actually said or did. Except, of course, George Takai staring at that screen. Which, in retrospect, was a shame and a missed opportunity because apparently that first film never really took advantage of something that director Nicholas Meyer this time around was smart enough to seize upon. A natural chemistry and shorthand with its stars and the characters that they are playing. You feel it instantly with the banter between Kirk and McCoy on the Kobayashi Maru, Wouldn't it be easier to just put an experienced crew back on the ship? Galloping around the cosmos is a game for the young doctor. Now, what is that supposed to mean? Aren't you dead? I assume you're loitering around here to learn what efficiency rating I plan to give your cadets. I am understandably curious. They destroyed the simulator room and you with it. The Kobayashi Maru scenario frequently wreaks havoc with students and equipment. As I recall, you took the test three times yourself. Your final solution was, shall we say, unique. It had the virtue of never having been tried. 
These folks now know each other well, and we feel an easy familiarity with them, even if we haven't seen them in anything else before. This sort of thing is very hard to recreate, and it's absolute narrative magic in the right hands. It's very likely a big driver for why Marvel properties have such a devoted following right now. Most of those actors slash characters have an undeniable chemistry, and the audience feels that with them. It's the core strength of Star Trek II, and fortunately, it's at the service of a film which tells a compelling story that tests our protagonists, has some compelling ideas, like Genesis, a great idea in theory, which any functional scientist would have to be positively delusional to think would not be exploited once it was taken over by the military. And of course, this movie also has a great all-time villain driving its story. Khan is played by Ricardo Montalban in a dazzling performance, which is actually quieter than you might remember, and probably is even given less screen time than you might remember. But he is name-checked in the title for a reason. His presence is felt throughout the remaining runtime once he first appears. He's angry, intelligent, brutal, arrogant, and also very eloquent in how he expresses himself, and in how he tries to execute his revenge on Admiral Kirk. They're still running with shields down. Of course, we are one big happy fleet. Ah, Kirk, my old friend. Do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? It is very cold in space. Rewatching this decades later, this character's introduction still unnerves me, but we'll get to that a bit later. Khan, of course, is the perfect foil for Kirk, played by William Shatner, in what I think might be his best performance in anything before or since. Khan provides the unnerving calm to counter the always staccato brashness of Kirk. And that brashness always plays equally well against the unique styles of equally worn longtime collaborators like Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly. They inhabited these characters all too well, and while sadly both actors are no longer with us, they are both still very fondly remembered as Spock and McCoy. The stirring final moments of this film don't land nearly as well and could have even drifted into maudlin territory if not for each actor bringing their history with these roles to the table. He's really not dead. As long as we remember it. Jack Sowards, who wrote the bulk of the screenplay and deserves a ton of credit for poetry like that, Sadly, he never wrote another movie afterwards. But yeah, that ending still packs a punch. You got the bagpipes, that star hitting the edge of the Genesis planet as the camera pans past it, Nimoy's monologue. Space, the final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the starship Enterprise. Her ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds to seek out new life forms and new civilizations to boldly go where no man has gone before it's one of the great endings and it has likely cast a shadow over everything else to come out of the trekverse since then just as more than four decades later the excellence of empire strikes back still cast a shadow over everything else star wars Happy 40th anniversary to a sequel which has few equals. And now that brings us to the categories. The first category is the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Talk about someone who keeps coming up on this podcast 
I am actually starting to wonder if the late great James Horner might have been the best all-around big movie composer of the 1980s. Because, wow, dude has just killed it with so many great memorable scores during this decade, including previous episodes, Aliens and Glory, possible future episodes, Commando, The Name of the Rose, and Feel the Dreams, and even several otherwise mediocre films where his score was by far the best part of them. Krull, Willow, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. For a while, honestly, it seemed that if your movie featured high adventure, that Horner was your guy. And that's apparently why he was hired to take over the score for this Star Trek sequel, even after Jerry Goldsmith had pretty much killed it with the first film. Goldsmith's cerebral, moody score was definitely among the most memorable aspects of the motion picture. But this time around, newly hired director Nicholas Meyer was aiming for something more, to quote him, nautical. This time around, the USS Enterprise was going to feel more like a battleship or submarine locked in an epic back and forth with a rival ship. And on that front, Horner more than succeeded. This score is just amazing, emotional, and suspenseful. In fact, you could easily make the case that this might be the best all-around score that we've seen for a Star Trek movie. Considering that that includes masters like Goldsmith and Michael Giacchino, who provided this ongoing franchise with some true banger scores... That's pretty high praise as far as I'm concerned. It's basically an orchestral score filled with strings, but Horner just loves using those trumpets and his signature French horns to ramp things up whenever things get a little bit hairy on screen. And this is never more obvious than during one of my favorite sequences in the movie, when Kirk and his crew on the Enterprise are caught suddenly off guard by hostile maneuvers from one of their fellow Starfleet ships, the USS Reliant. How can this be? Well, guess who is now piloting the Reliant? It's Khan, and he's determined to teach his old friend Kirk a lesson. Just such a fun sequence of verbal back and forth, tactical maneuvers, and of course loads of pyrotechnics as both ships just fire at each other with large-scale phasers. What helps launch this sequence into the stratosphere is of course the music. This piece of music is of course called Surprise Attack. The next category is Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, this is a tough category because The Wrath of Khan has a pretty extensive ensemble, and for most of its runtime, they are often separated. You have Khan's crew, the Enterprise crew, and the crew of scientists on Regular One, led by Carol Marcus, played by B.B. Besh. 
Given that, and the film's relatively trim, 113-minute runtime, I find it hard to see how anyone was really given short shrift. I just love how the narrative moves here, so I'm glad that Meyer and crew kept this film so tight. I mean, if this film came out today, you could be damn sure that it would likely be 150 minutes minimum. That said, I do have my personal preferences among this cast of characters. And me personally, I would have preferred to have seen more Sulu, more George Takei. Sulu is a man of action, and all things being equal, I would have preferred him going down to regular one with that select group from the Enterprise to seek out Khan and his minions. Sulu certainly could have handled himself better than Bones in that situation. Just saying. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now back to the introduction of Khan. Watching him remove his mask, calmly explaining how he was wronged, and even him playfully referring to those extremely creepy earworms as, quote, pets, just as he orders them inserted into the heads of Chekhov and Captain Terrell. Whew. Just watch the anguished, sweaty faces of both Walter Koenig and Paul Winfield in that scene as they anticipate this. They are beyond terrified, and that's the power of Montauban's Khan. This is, of course, helped by some nifty creature effects from Industrial Light and Magic. Just one of the great balls-out introductions to any villain that I can recall. You see, their young enter through the ears and wrap themselves around the cerebral cortex. This has the effect of rendering the victim extremely susceptible to uh, suggestion. Later, as they grow, Follows madness and death. Can't listen to me. These are pets, of course. Not quite domesticated. And now the final category, the MVP the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Rewatching Wrath of Khan this latest time, it became increasingly obvious to me that this is Kirk's story and Shatner's movie. And here's why. Regarding that often parodied staccato speak, which has become Shatner's trademark for better or worse, it serves him really well in this performance as we are witnessing the arc of someone already in a midlife crisis who is suddenly feeling humbled by mistakes from his past catching up to him. And he now has to come to terms with what he has to be willing to give up to come out victorious on the other side. What better way for Shatner to convey this than with scared pauses among some of his dialogue? It's, quote, acting in the most obvious sense, but it works and we feels Kirk's emotion through every pause. Please tell me what you're feeling. There's a man out there I haven't seen in 15 years. He's trying to kill me. You show me a son that'd be happy to help him. My son. My life that could have been. It wasn't. What am I feeling? Old. Worn out. Overall, everyone involved pretty much brought their A-game to this film, from Horner composing his first big score, to the visual effects folks at ILM providing the first extended on-screen demonstration of CGI when we see that presentation on Genesis. Meyer himself deserves enormous props for literally riding the ship on Star Trek as a film franchise by shifting its tone towards that of a seafaring adventure. At the end of the day, though, you could only have one captain, and Shatner really earned his stripes giving a truly impressive performance. That enough Navy puns for you? <laughs> well, allow me one more. Bill Shatner is the MVP, and I salute him. 
It's a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done before. A far better resting place I go to than I have ever known. Is that a poem? Mm. Something Spock was trying to tell me on my birthday. You okay, Jim? How do you feel? My rating for Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, would be five stars out of five. Most franchises are lucky to have just one entry as good as Wrath of Khan, and it's certainly something for any IP, any franchise to aspire to. This film remains one of the best arguments I can think of for the enduring concept of the sequel. Here's hoping that more studios and producers eventually, and it's been 40 years already, learn the right types of lessons from its success. And if you're looking to watch Star Trek II Wrath of Khan, it's currently streaming on Paramount+. And that ends another vengeful review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.